up, horror fans? Say no to drugs and stay out of the basement. You're listening to Confessions of a Final Girl. Hello out there. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Molly, and I love scary movies, and in some cases, scary television shows or scary video games. So I come here to process my feelings about them. Before I jump into tonight's topics, which include the second half of the first season of the new Creepshow series, the Diablo 4 cinematic trailer and accompanying news, as well as one of my personal favorite films in the Halloween franchise that seems to be taking a bit of a beating on the internet lately for some reason, before I dive into all of that, I have a little confession to make. Don't say something that you don't mean and that you can't take back. Forgive me, Father, for I have Twitter. Twitter. Twitter is a thing I'm doing now. (laughs) I swore it off. That's the thing. That's why I'm frustrated with myself about this. I'm not great with social media in general. I find the whole status update culture thing a little bizarre. Most of the time, I, I will create social media accounts and then I just won't ever use them. I tried a couple of times in the earlier days of Twitter's existence to be a part of it. I I did try, but I just, I wasn't good at maintaining my personal Twitter account. So I said I would never do it again. But at the insistence of a couple of very wise friends of mine, I did decide to go ahead and create a Twitter account for the podcast. And I'm hoping that because it's for confessions, it'll be a little easier for me to maintain it, especially because this particular account will be thematic. You know, um, just in like the 18 hours that I've been using Twitter, I have learned a few really exciting things. And I've noticed that this sort of thing, like the Twitter thing, the Discord thing, uh, and just the podcast itself has really been helping me kind of live a little bit more in the present. I, as I've said many times, very much live under a rock. I'm not great at keeping up with the news. And I always find out about things like way after they were actually exciting to everyone else. Um, and I've felt that changing since June. I'm spending a little bit of time every day making the rounds on the internet and looking, scouring for for cool things to talk about, to explore here with you guys. And and that's really great. I'm I didn't actually consider the possibility that the podcast would help me connect with the world in this particular way. So I'm actually not as ashamed about the Twitter thing as I would have thought. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's there's some shame there, but it's actually kind of exciting as well. I mean, I know it's like 2019 and it's ridiculous to say, hey, guess what, guys? I... I'm trying Twitter, like I'm, but that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. So if you'd like to find me on Twitter, my username is FG Confessions because I chose a very unoriginal name for my podcast and everything I wanted to use was already taken. So, so that's what I got left with. I'm looking forward to learning more about the world and living a little bit closer to everyone else in it, if that makes sense. Now with that out of the way, I wasn't actually intending on recording an episode this week, but there's just been so much that has come up in the last, you know, week or so, and I didn't want to draw focus from our Halloween episode, so I'm doing an extra episode this month. First and foremost, I learned today through Twitter that um, the new Creepshow series is going to be returning for a second season. 
And I am so thrilled to hear that. I got caught up on the second half of season one last night. I watched um, episodes four through six, and I was really happy to be rounding out the season. But the thing that made me the happiest is that I was actually right about something. (laughs) It was Trisha Helfer in that brief flash in the trailer that I saw before the series was released, it was Trisha Helfer. And I, I felt a little crazy because I looked at the cast list for the series a couple of times because I thought it might have been her. I'm a, I'm a very big fan of hers. And I'm also determined to see her embrace what I feel is her destiny as a member of the Final Girl Hall of Fame. I think that she belongs in this genre. And so when I thought I saw her very briefly in the trailer, I just got so excited. And so then I started looking around trying to find some confirmation that it was her. And I couldn't find it anywhere. And I just feel like I was losing my mind because now I go to IMDb and she's there. So either I cannot read, which I'm going to say is probably the most likely explanation, (laughs) or I don't know, my, my, my eyes are playing tricks on me. But yeah, she plays Lydia Lane in the second story of the fourth episode um, which I, I'll get to in a minute. I want to I wanna stay on a linear path here, but oh, I was so happy. And I was right. It was her. So yes, I'm very excited to talk about Lydia Lane's better half. But before I can, I've got to talk about The Companion, which is the first story in the fourth episode. The Companion was directed by David Bruckner and written by Joe Lansdale. I think it's a fun story. It also contains a couple of really neat Easter eggs um, that I just, I got a, I got a kick out of this one. Uh, the Companion tells the story of a young boy, Harold, who is being brutalized by his older brother. His older brother has like a, a little bit of like a Henry Bowers thing going on or a Billy from Stranger Things. Um... He also reminds me a little bit of Brendan Sexton III's character from Welcome to the Dollhouse. I don't know if anybody remembers that movie, but he's beating the hell out of his younger brother, Harold. And Harold is hiding from him in what looks like a small quarry. Billy catches up with him and chases him onto a farm where Harold ends up hiding in this farmhouse from him. But along the way, he discovers an odd-looking scarecrow on the property. Then once he gets into the house, he finds the body of a man who committed suicide in the basement. And the story is partly about this young boy trying to uh, escape and find a solution for this tumultuous relationship with his brother, but also it's about that man in the basement and the scarecrow out in the field. These last three episodes in the series have a lot, a lot of narration. Um, Like most of these stories have narrators. And I'm not always the biggest fan of narration, and particularly in some of the ways that it was handled in some of these stories. But I... I enjoyed it in this story, I think, more than any of the others. I thought that this was a really great way to to present, you know, this series of events. It's really great because, well, first of all, they named the young boy Harold, which I thought was really a great choice, as Harold is also the name of what, for me, has always been the scariest scarecrow that I've ever come in contact with in fiction, which is Harold from Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. But also it has definitely my favorite Easter egg of the series. When Harold is down in that little quarry, graffitied behind him on the concrete wall in big white letters is the sentence, Jimmy is a dead fuck, which is a reference to my favorite Friday the 13th film, the final chapter, and my favorite character in that story, which was Crispin Glover's character, Jimmy. Oh, I see. Oh, don't hold it back. Back for me, Doc. I can take it. Give it to me straight. I 
lost my shit when I saw that. I don't normally spot Easter eggs. You know how there are just, you know, hundreds of people on YouTube who create videos, like collections of Easter eggs in video games and films. Like, these are the 10 things you missed in Resident Evil 6 and, you know, or 12 things you didn't notice about Joker or whatever. Yeah, I am one of those people that relies on those YouTubers to tell me like what I missed because I always miss those things. So I was just doubly happy, not only that there is that wonderful reference to that Friday film, but that I actually spotted it in the moment. <laughs> I think my favorite thing about the companion uh, was the design of the scarecrow. So far, there have been a couple of monsters that have just been done so well in this series thus far. And I think the scarecrow is definitely one of them. He, I really love what they did with it. I don't want to spoil anything, but I mean, it's a kind of haunted scarecrow story. I think it goes without saying that at, at one point, the scarecrow does come to life. And once it does that, I love its movement. I love the way that it behaves. It's its very, not necessarily eerie, but it does have this otherworldly quality. And I just, I was really impressed with the design of the Scarecrow. But yeah, and I thought it was a solid story and a very appropriate contribution to this particular collection. The next story in the fourth episode is the one that I mentioned earlier, which is Lydia Lane's Better Half. It was directed by Roxanne Benjamin and written by John Harrison and Greg Nicotero. And this is definitely one of my favorite stories in the series thus far. That is not my future. I am not an appendage to the brilliant and powerful Lydia Lane. It's one of the more mature stories. And even more so than that, it was masterfully paced. I think the pacing is a huge part of what makes this story as frightening as it is. And it is. And it's kind of tough to watch, actually. So you have the character of Lydia Lane, who is a high-powered businesswoman at the top of her game. She was just voted Woman of the Year. And she is selecting from one of her two employees or assistants. I, I don't I don't know exactly what relationship they have to her at the start, but she's choosing one of them to kind of be her new right-hand man. It's a CFO position that she's giving them. And the two people that she's choosing between are Tom, who just seems seems to be sort of like a generic everyman, and Celia, who we learn very quickly is also Lydia's girlfriend or lover. But she doesn't choose Celia to be her CFO. She chooses Tom. And this does not sit well with Celia. And the two of them have an argument which results in Celia's accidental death. And so the, the bulk of the story is Lydia panicking about the fact that she's just killed her lover and trying to, to get Celia's body out of the building. We get the impression that Lydia has you know, kind of like a corporate penthouse. And so she has to take Celia's body from that penthouse and, and dispose of it somehow. Most of the story takes place in the elevator as she is trying to get rid of Celia's body. And it is so brilliantly done. I love it. And I'm not just saying that because Lydia Lane is played by Trisha Helfer, although she just did such a spectacular job. I love her. But also Danielle Lynn, who plays Celia's corpse, essentially. I mean, she does play Celia when she was alive, but Celia when she was dead, man, she's haunting. Danielle Lynn plays a very convincing and unsettling corpse. It is a tough story to watch because it's kind of like watching a woman buried alive beneath an avalanche of consequences, you know? And the story could be interpreted in a couple of different ways. Um, I 
kind of believe that everything that's happening is a manifestation of her guilt, but it could also be interpreted literally, I think, and either way, it works. They played a lot with lighting and sound design in this particular story as well, uh, in a way that was really effective. This is a story that I would really like to watch alone at night for that just deep, frightened feeling. And so far, I think there was only one other story in this first season that actually affected me that way. I think that was, and that was Bad Wolf Down. So yeah, I really enjoyed Lydia Lane's better half. Now, the fifth episode of the series contains two stories, both of which were written by uh, a writing team, um, John Skip and Dory Miller. The first story, Night of the Paw, was directed by John Harrison. And the second story, which is called Times is Tough in Musky Holler, was directed by John Esposito. I'm talking about them, kind of lumping them together because... I'm not really crazy about either of them. These stories kind of fell a little short for me in the same way that Grey Matter did. Night of the Paw, it, it does star Bruce Davison, which I'm a big fan of Bruce Davison. I love the 71 version of Willard. And he did a great job with the story as it was written. And uh, Times is Tough features David Arquette, who also did a really great job with the story as it was written. Like they, both of these have people in them that I really enjoy that do a great job, but the stories themselves, they both felt very theatrical. And by that, I mean that both of them, I think would have made pretty good stage plays that just don't work for me on screen. And you know, my standards are low for Creepshow, you know, like I'm expecting these episodes to challenge my, you know, ability to suspend my disbelief. I'm looking for the cheese factor. I want it to feel a little unnatural, a little out of this world, because that's what I love about Creepshow. Um, but this is, this goes beyond that. This was something that took me out of it to a point where, you know, both of these stories, I just, I couldn't invest. So Night of the Paw is an interesting take on the story of the monkey's paw. Whereas like, you know how that story typically starts with somebody getting the paw and making their wishes and then ends with the final wish being that character's undoing. And there are elements of that here, but the story actually begins with all three wishes of the monkey's paw having been spent by the late wife of Bruce Davison's character. There are some very interesting things in the story. Like, I think that if the execution had been just a little different, it could have been really great. It is a new take on a classic tale. It's set in a funeral home. Bruce Davison is a funeral director whose wife has recently passed away. And one night, a young woman shows up on his doorstep and her appearance turns out to kind of be a bit of a destined thing. I really did enjoy the set design for this episode. There's a part of the episode where Bruce Davison ends up in a cemetery. And the set design for the cemetery scenes is fucking exquisite. I love it. It's so classically eerie. They did a great job with that. I had even higher hopes for the the second story in, in the fifth episode, which is Times is Tough in Musky Holler. It starts out really in a neat way because you have this group of, of just sort of like your everyday average town citizens, including the mayor. So you have like the mayor, the sheriff, the town gossip, the town preacher, and a couple of his, you know, main constituents or, or wives, you know, whatever. And they're all locked in an underground prison cell. Even more so than Night of the Paw, I felt like Times is Tough had a lot of potential to be 
a really great story. But I think the time constraint was probably the biggest killer of this one for me. Like, there was a lot of really quick narration and what felt like like jolting jumps in time. And I remember feeling like, kind of like when I saw Crimson Peak, actually. Very similar internal reaction where I was like, you know, I feel like there's a lot of really good stuff here that we're just not seeing because we're, we're moving the story along so quickly. I want to see this told as a full-length feature film or even as like a, t- a TV miniseries or something because this was a cool idea. It's a dystopian story. And we learn through the narration and also through some lengthy speeches given by the mayor that the the town itself, which was affected by something that was happening globally, kind of fell under the new management of this mayor who took advantage of this tragedy, you know, this horrible thing that was happening and used it to kind of push his own sort of sick and twisted agendas. Um, and there's a really great moment for the mayor during his longest and most powerful speech. And uh, I can't really say a whole lot about it beyond that, because I think obviously the people who created this story really want the reveal at the end to be a huge surprise. I really enjoyed David Arquette for what little bit of time we saw him. He just was giving it his all as this twisted sheriff. I thought he did a a pretty great job. So for me, episode five was a relatively forgettable episode, but you know what they say, they can't all be winners. And I think it was all right for this episode to be forgettable because the final episode in the first season, the, the sixth episode for me was very memorable. It was a great note to go out on. You have the first story in episode six, which is Skin Crawlers, uh, also directed by Roxanne Benjamin, who directed Lydia Lane. And this one was written by Paul Dini and Stephen Langford. Man has been obsessed with his own image since the beginning of time. Now, that image can be perfected. Skin Crawlers is hands down the most um, horrific body horror-esque story in the season. The only thing that could even come close to somewhat rivaling it might be Bad Wolf Down, but I don't think it does. I don't think anything comes close (laughs) in the series to reaching the level of grotesque body horror uh, that Skin Crawlers does. And um, it's great. Skin Crawlers tells the story of a man who wants very badly to lose weight. And his desire to lose weight leads him to a facility that provides a very quick and easy instant weight loss procedure that is painless, it's flawless, there's never been anything like it. And it turns out that this weight loss procedure is reliant on fat eating leeches. They just like attach the leeches to your stomach and then they suck all the fat out and all of a sudden you're a beautiful supermodel. Everybody starts doing this procedure and this this man who wants to lose weight very badly is just a little too freaked out by the leech thing. The story is about what happens to um, really everyone around him as a result of you know this procedure. And it is fucking gross. It is a very gross episode. <laughs> but I love the story. I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was a funny, sick an entertaining story. I really like Skin Crawlers. The final note that the show goes out on uh, for its first season, the story is called By the Silver Water of Lake Champlain, and it was directed by Tom Savini, written by Joe Hill, and it is great. It is, it is great. I don't want to really say much about 
about it because I don't want to spoil it for anyone. I thought it was enchanting. There was something very magical about it. And I know that I use that word a lot, but like this, this had a, that mythical element to it. It was, it was enchanting. And you know, when I learned that Tom Savini directed this and I learned that Joe Hill wrote it, both of those things make so much sense. So it's the story of a widow and her two children. Their father in life was obsessed with finding something he believed lived in the lake. Their house is like right near the lake. And much like the cemetery scenes in Night of the Paw, the set design for By the Silver Water was like just stellar. It was so good. And even more so than the set design, the thing that lives in the lake, hands down my favorite creature from all of the stories told in this first season. I loved the design of that creature. It was Again, I, I, I hate to fall back on this word, but I don't know what other word would best describe it. It was enchanting. It felt like a fairy tale. It was a beautiful story with breathtaking set design, or what for me was breathtaking set design. Also very theatrical, but appropriately so. This story is a little predictable, which is also partly why I don't really want to say much more about it, because it's already not doing itself any favors in terms of predictability. So I don't want to ruin it, you know, even more for anyone else, but um, it was just, it was neat. <laughs> also, I'm pretty sure, although I don't, I mean, I'm not 100% certain, but I'm pretty sure that Adrian Barbeau is featured in this story. At the beginning of the story, the, there's a radio program playing uh, and a, uh, that sultry voice that sounds like exactly like Adrian Barbeau's is coming through the radio talking about the fog and how the fog isn't going to ruin anybody's day in Lake Champlain. You know, um, I loved it. I, I loved getting to hear Adrian Barbeau's voice through a radio talking about fog. Um, and, I, and I hope it was her because that means that she was present in, in two episodes of this first season. So those are my thoughts on the second half of the first season of Creepshow. I overall really enjoyed this season. I thought it just, it had some really great performances in it, some wonderful storytelling. Um, and while not every story hit the nail on the head, I think that's true of almost all anthologies. And what I did love in the new Creep Show, I really, really loved. I'm so excited about next season. I cannot wait. I hope that you guys have also watched and enjoyed the new Creep Show. I would love to hear your thoughts on the series if you uh, have been watching it or have finished it already. <laughs> um, please tell me all about it. I want to know. I want to know what your thoughts were, man. I really, I really like it. All right, so next up, I feel like BlizzCon just started five seconds ago, and already the internet is overflowing with news about what I think is the most exciting thing from the con, um, which is Diablo 4. I can't even begin. Um, I mean, I have to begin, but like, I don't know where to begin. I guess I'll start with the nine minute long cinematic. All the knowledge you seek is here. This cinematic is so dark. It is so bloody. It is so exciting. These treasure hunters are making their way through some kind of catacombs, and they are not alone. Um, and they use their blood to power a door, which leads them into a room where they are then plucked off and sacrificed one by one to raise Lilith, the mother of misery. And oh, she looks so good. I am just 
so pumped for Diablo 4. I, I, ugh, uh, I thought that what I really wanted to hear about was Overwatch 2, but I, I don't. I don't know how many of you out there play Blizzard games. Alan and I, we play World of Warcraft and Diablo 3, uh, and I, I play Overwatch, but we were really hoping with a, a huge portion of the Blizzard community, we were all hoping for the announcement of Diablo 4 at last year's BlizzCon. But instead of getting Diablo 4, we got Diablo Immortal, which was supposed to be a Diablo mobile game, which still doesn't seem to have been released, uh, which I'm glad about because it's fucking atrocious. We don't need Diablo Immortal. Nobody wanted Diablo Immortal. It was just such a, a, a profound disappointment for so many of us. And I, I had a feeling, Alan and I had been speculating a lot this year about whether or not they would be announcing, you know, Diablo 4 for this year's BlizzCon. And I always felt that they they would have to, you know, the only way that they could have actually made up for Diablo Immortal was to announce Diablo 4 this year. And man, did they announce it. The most exciting thing about Diablo 4 for me and, and for I think a lot of, of fans of the series is that Diablo has always been a horror game. But Diablo 3, it was a little bit more sunshine and rainbows, you know, at times in a way that was really disappointing for those of us um, that were particularly fond of the the style and tone of Diablo. The people that were there for the for the horror. Diablo 3 was a bit of a disappointment. It was it was a letdown. This definitely seems to be a return to their roots. It is exciting. Um, I have seen a little bit of the actual gameplay footage as well. Not as much as I would like. I'm I'm definitely going to devote some more time to that probably this evening. But what I have seen of the gameplay is very impressive, particularly the world designs. They look a little richer, a little lusher, but at the same time, much darker, you know? Um, and I mean, the realm designs for Diablo 3 were also very dark, but this, I don't know, there's something grittier about some of the landscapes that I was seeing. It looks scary, and I am so happy about that. Andrew Webster of The Verge quoted Blizzard as saying um, that Diablo 4 is being developed using modern technology that pushes the franchise to dark new depths. This technology is at the heart of everything players will see, hear, and feel, delivering much higher fidelity and a more engrossing experience. It opens up countless possibilities for the Diablo series, from smooth character animations such as the druid's fluid shape-shifting. I can't even, words can't describe how excited I am about the druid class, to the seamless, vast overworld players will travel across in search of the next loot-filled underground dungeon. Ultimately, Diablo 4 will ground players in a grittier and deadlier world. That's just, that just sounds lovely. <laughs> just, I, I want to live and play in a grittier and deadlier world. Please and thank you. I definitely recommend watching the cinematic trailer. It's, uh, as I said, nine minutes long. It is brutal and beautiful. It's, it's great. Even if you're not a fan of Diablo or even if you've never played uh, any of the Diablo games, I definitely recommend checking it out because it's, it's like a short film, a very macabre and mesmerizing short film. So, yeah. Yay! Diablo 4. I can't wait. It's going to be so good. And now to stick my nose into the middle of a conversation that doesn't include me on the internet regarding one of my personal favorite films in the Halloween franchise, which is Halloween 2 from 1981. Is this some kind of joke? I've been trick or treated to death tonight. You don't know what death is. 
I have recently been discovering a lot of horror movie-focused podcasts. I think I originally started looking around for other podcasts like mine, um, mostly just to kind of see, like, what other people were doing. If I wanted to turn this into a thing, you know, like, what, what should I be doing? What shouldn't I be doing? But then I also just sort of, as a result of that, have just kind of become obsessed with a couple of different YouTube channels and podcasts that I didn't know existed until I started doing this thing, you know? And I think the most notable for me has been a YouTube channel called We Watched a Movie. I have fallen completely in love with this YouTube channel and its offshoot podcast. Um, it's just two guys, Mike and Jay, and they just sit around and talk about horror movies. They also do like full commentaries for films. They have a collection of short films that sort of parody the Halloween series. They actually just hit 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. And I, I just discovered them like a few weeks ago. So I feel weird saying like, good job, guys. Like I've been there the whole time. <laughs> But like, I am really happy for them because I feel like these guys deserve it. They are exceptionally vulgar dudes. Like if you are in any way offended by strong language, uh, they, they will not be the guys for you. But they're, I love them. I could just listen to them talk about movies all day. That being said, um, they posted an episode on their podcast called Suffering Through Some Guy's Terrible Halloween Movies Ranking. And so obviously I had to click on that immediately. So they found this list ranking all of the Halloween films on Esquire Magazine's website. And it was so awful. It was just so disappointing, let's say, that they had no choice but to read it aloud and tear it apart. Um... And it was, it was very entertaining to listen to, but it also pissed me off. And I know that this is not my conversation. <laughs> it is not my conversation at all. I'm not even remotely a part of it, but I want to weigh in on this. I tracked down the article that they read, um, and I highly recommend listening to their episode. One of the many reasons why I love these guys is because of their specific opinions regarding the Halloween series, which apart from they have a lot of really good things to say about the first um, Rob Zombie Halloween remake. And, and anyone out there who listened to my remakes episode knows that I absolutely have very little to say about it that is positive, apart, apart from that it has a wonderful cast. But that's kind of where my affection for that film ends. Um, but other than that, I love that they so passionately defend Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, which I've always really loved. Granted, I am 36. I grew up on The Curse of Michael Myers. I was young enough when that film came out that, like, for example, Paul Rudd will always be Tommy Doyle to me. There will never be a, a better grown-up Tommy Doyle. I liked that they actually continued on with the fucking train wreck that was the storyline introduced in the fifth film, and they they tried to do something with it. So anyway, at this point, I'm, I'm actually just saying the exact same things that Mike and Jay said. The reason that I didn't talk about any of the Halloween films during the month of October is because I knew you know, being so new to this and still kind of trying to feel it out, I knew that there were going to be just countless people talking about the Halloween movies and talking about it better than I could. And I, I just didn't even want to try. And we watched a movie that's an excellent example of people who were doing it and doing it better than I would have. So I'm not going to just like, re, you know, rehash or retell everything that they said. However, this guy from Esquire magazine in his list, which is just such a weird ranking, man. He made some very strange choices. But I think the strangest of those and the one that really kind of bugged me, like genuinely bugged me, 
was that he ranked Halloween 2 from 1981 at number 5. Not only did he insult it simply by putting it at number 5 on the list, just right smack in the middle, which is just such a non-committal place to put what I feel is such a great installment in the series, but like, he also, okay, so this is what this guy said about Halloween 2. He said, this is where it all went wrong. So first of all, he's implying that the entire series just was, it was all downhill from the sequel, the second film, you know, which is just such an absurd thing to say. Um, but then he goes on to say, after a massive success with the first film, Halloween 2 came along and fell apart so hard that Curtis didn't even return for the third installment which that has nothing to do with why Jamie Lee Curtis was not a part of the third film. The third film, they were trying to create uh, essentially an anthology film series, and there was no Laurie Strode in that story. There, there was no reason for Laurie Strode to exist in that story. There was no reason for Jamie Lee Curtis to come back. And uh, and she did actually make uh, an appearance of sorts in that film. So that was ridiculous. He then goes on to say, attempting to recreate the magic of the first, the hospital set film falls into cliche quickly before seemingly stalling out and going nowhere. Most critics agree that Halloween 2 derailed the franchise for a long, long time before course correcting years later. This intrigued me when he said that most critics agree that Halloween 2 was essentially a, a terrible movie. Um, so I had to look into that. That's the part that really I, I couldn't, I wanted to look into it. So I looked at a couple of other like top available ranked lists of the Halloween films and like Collider, their list was a little bit better. They, they made some better choices in their rankings, but they also put Halloween 2 at number five. Now Variety Magazine did put Halloween 2 at number two on their ranking list, but then they put H2O like way, way down on the list. So they lost me. They had me and then they lost me. Time Magazine put Halloween 2 at number five on their list as well. And in fact, they said something, I think, like Time Magazine said something that was way worse than what the dude from Esquire said, because they said, the first Halloween sequel is one of the better entries in the franchise, but it nonetheless suffers from a serious case of not needing to exist. The original Halloween has a perfect ending. Michael strolls away from Tommy Doyle's house unharmed to wreak unknowable future havoc. But Halloween 2 posits that he just walked over to the hospital and came after Laurie again. First of all, what the fuck is wrong with all of you? Literally all of you who work for these like big magazines. Why? why? Well, except for you, um, person from Variety. I think that Michael Myers getting up and walking away from Tommy Doyle's house and going straight to the hospital to go after Lori again is a big part of what contributes to the horror of Michael Myers. It's that unrelenting, almost mechanized pursuit of Laurie Strode. You know, this single-mindedness, this no matter what you do, you cannot keep him down. As a lifelong fan of this series, the dude still scares the shit out of me. It's one of the many reasons I love him so much. Halloween 2 is actually one of the few Halloween films that if I fall asleep watching it, it almost inevitably gives me nightmares. And part of it, a big part of it, I think, is that relentless pursuit of Laurie. The fact that he's like a boomerang. It's just no matter what you do, he's coming right back for you. That rhymed. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
An hour ago, I stood up and, and fired six shots into him. He just got up and walked away. Now again, film is subjective. It's one of the things that I love most about film is that we all have the potential to take something different away from it. And I'm not saying that I want everyone in the world to love Halloween too, but in addition to that relentless pursuit, um, which to me, the relentless pursuit has always been a primary aspect of what little personality Michael Myers has, you know? And it, it is an essential part of his personality. And I feel that it's established almost entirely in Halloween too, you know? Um, especially because his relationship with Laurie as a character is established in Halloween too. And then, yeah, I mean, of course, Halloween too had problems. Absolutely. They were in a hospital that literally had a staff of like five people and apparently no other patients, which is obnoxious. It is. It was a very quiet film in a way that is less, I think, was less believable than the first Halloween. It looked like somebody just like draped a couple of dead squirrels over Lori's head because, you know, they had to put on that terrible, utterly god-awful wig. I, Halloween 2 required, I think, a much greater suspension of disbelief, but I don't think that that hinders the film in any way. Apart from perhaps slightly less believability and a really bad wig, what is wrong with this story? What is wrong with this film? It is still nuanced. It is still beautifully shot at times. It also had some very unique and creative things uh, that happened throughout the film too, in terms of, you know, like the depiction of horror. You know, and, and I think something else too that Halloween 2 really did well was continue to illustrate and expand upon Lori's resilience and resourcefulness. She was every bit as unwavering in her determination to escape Michael and to survive her survival instincts were every bit as unrelenting as Michael himself. And that that's a very important contribution to the character of Lori as we understand her. She was born two years before he was committed. Two years after his parents died and she was adopted by the Strodes. In addition to everything else that I love about Halloween 2, one of the things that has has always lingered with me, that has stayed with me over all of these years about this film in particular. These writers from these magazines are saying things like, you know, that they that that Halloween 2 was trying to do what John Carpenter did. Well, in one particular aspect, I think that Halloween 2 absolutely succeeded in doing what John Carpenter did in that it created this very palpable tension at times when Laurie is hiding in the car and we, you know, think that she has finally found this temporary sanctuary. But of course, Jimmy, you know, stumbles out and gets into the very car that she's in. Every bone in my body is so tense for her, for Laurie. When she's crawling, like dragging her body across the parking lot, trying to scream. Like these are iconic, mortifying moments. And that, that tension that we feel, that anticipation, you know, and that hope that we feel for Lori in Halloween 2 is exactly what existed in the first Halloween. And I also think that that quite a bit of that came from the fact that the story itself was still very simple and straightforward. A young girl who has been a victim of this brutality goes to the hospital and the man who is trying to kill her comes back and she's trying to survive while everyone else in the hospital is killed off. It's a very simple story, much like the story in the first Halloween. I think that with the exception of that important detail of Lori being related to Michael, um, you know, 
which I understand why they did that. I get it. I get that they needed to justify his determination to kill her. And I think that it was a very smart choice as somebody who is a huge fan of H2O and the character of Laurie Strode being my, the ultimate heroine for me. Like she is my hero. And I don't think that we would have gotten quite that Laurie if they hadn't set that up that way, you know, and H2O wouldn't have what for me, you know, is the emotional weight that it has if they hadn't set it up that way. Like we needed that relationship. We needed that detail. Um, and so, but that's it. That's really the only thing that ups the complication factor of the story. It's a very simple, very straightforward story. And I think that also lent well to those very tense moments. I don't know. I don't think they would have, I don't think they're as effective in more convoluted stories, you know, like five and six. <laughs> I love The Curse of Michael Myers, but I mean, for God's sakes, it is a convoluted story. And I mean, it's not, it's not as if Halloween 2 necessarily needs people in its corner defending it. I mean, you know, when you Google the film, Yes, it got a 28% on Rotten Tomatoes, one of the absolute worst websites on the internet, in my personal opinion. But it also has like a 91% approval rating on Google in general. You know what I mean? Like 91% of like everyday average moviegoers and people who love these, these films love this film. So it just, it bugs me. It bugs me, these lists. And then I, I went to some of the critics' reviews. And I'm sorry to, like, jump right to a Roger Ebert place, but I have to. Roger Ebert's review of Halloween 2 ends on this note. Mad slasher movies, they were called, and they became a genre of their own, even inspiring a book of pseudo-scholarship splatter movies by John McCarty. His definition of a splatter film is concise and disheartening and bears quoting. They aim not to scare their audiences necessarily, nor to drive them to the edge of their seats in suspense, but to mortify them with scenes of explicit gore. In splatter movies, mutilation is indeed the message, many times the only one. And then Roger Ebert went on to say Halloween 2 fits this description precisely. It is not a horror film, but a geek show. I mean, come on. I love Roger Ebert. I do. May he rest in peace. But like, what? <laughs> what? <sighs> yeah, okay. There were a couple of brutal moments in Halloween 2. Sure. But like, seriously, there are so many more films that had come out long before Halloween 2. You know, much less, you know, ones that came out after, but like, before Halloween 2, that so far exceeded the gore in it. Like, I don't even remotely understand that criticism. It makes no sense to me. And anyway, you know what? Actually, now that I've read just the one, the one from like the top dog, I'm not even going to read any of these other criticisms of the film because I feel like there is quite a lot of misremembering happening here. I feel like there are some rewatches required from some of these people, obviously not Roger Ebert. And I'm not saying anything about it that most of you out there probably don't already know, but I really felt that it was important to defend it. You know, I think much like Mike and Jay felt, much like um, there was actually a really great article that I read on the flip side of this called In Defense of Halloween 2 from Jeff Cox of We Got This Covered. And he said, Michael's had it pretty good over the last four decades with more good and great sequels than outright disasters than his series tends to get credit for, the first of which I'll stick up for without hesitation being 1981's Halloween 2, which saw Carpenter sidestepping directorial duties and handing the reins to first-time director Rick Rosenthal, who unfortunately went on to direct Resurrection 20 years later. Really great. It's a wonderful article. I really enjoyed 
enjoy and recommend it. Um, but it's the same thing. You know, I think somebody else like me who just kind of was a little blindsided by some of the the negative criticisms on Halloween 2. And just I really felt I needed to say something in defense of it. I have loved that film since I was a little girl. It will always be in my top three. My personal favorite Halloween films will always be the first, second, and seventh ones. I loved Halloween's 1 and 2. I love Halloween H2O. I feel that those three films together, you know, back to back, are you'll create really what is almost a perfect story. So... I don't know. I Like I said, I didn't say anything about the Halloween films in October. Um, and it'll probably be a while before I really talk about the entire series at length. I'm just, I'm so new to this and everybody talks about Halloween. They've all, everyone said it all already. <laughs> but I really wanted to stand up and just hurl my two cents out into the void in favor of Halloween 2. Um, and also this gave me a good excuse to recommend We Watched a Movies podcast, which I, I think... I hope you guys check out. I hope you like. (sighs) I got a little worked up back there. (laughs) But there you have it. I hope that this wasn't just a complete like snooze fest of an episode. As I said earlier, it wasn't planned really in any way. I had very few notes on any of the things that I talked about. I guess I'm kind of experimenting with content that requires um, slightly fewer edits from me, Uh, maybe playing around with the idea of releasing four episodes a month instead of two. So this is more an experiment, I guess you could say, and because I wanted to just share some things with you guys, including the introduction of a new permanent segment to the podcast, which I I talked a little bit about in the patrons-only channel on my Discord, but I'm officially talking about it now. And that segment is the B-movie of the month. It's going to be my first like official permanent segment. I'm really excited about this. It was actually something I knew I wanted to do from the start. I just wasn't quite sure when would be a good time to to try incorporating it into these episodes. So I figure now is, is really the best time. I've got a couple of patrons now. I've been talking with quite a few of you on the Discord. So the B-movie of the month, um, I'll be announcing this month's B-movie in just a few minutes. What I would like to do from you know this point forward is at the beginning of every month, at the end of my first episode of each month, I will announce the B-movie of the month, which is a movie that I select to celebrate throughout the course of said month. And I'll be talking a little bit about it uh, over the course of however many episodes I'm able to release that month, ending with what I hope will be a communal examination of the film uh, in the last episode of each month. So that gives all of you out there or any of you that want to participate in this, as well as me, uh, plenty of time to watch the film, think about the film, organize our thoughts on it, discuss it on Discord. And then I would like to collect some of your thoughts and opinions on the film and incorporate those into my overall review and examination of the movie at the end of the month. My ultimate goal is eventually, if I get to a point where I can afford to do it comfortably, I would also like to do a monthly giveaway to accompany the B-movie of the month. I don't know what would be included in the giveaway. I want this to be a group experience. You know what I mean? I want us all to be here and involved in this. And so without further ado, November's B-movie of the month is... 
Slaughter High, written and directed by George Dugdale, Mark Ezra, and Peter Litton, released in 1986. I'm not going to talk a whole lot about the film today. Today is just sort of about letting you know that this is the B-movie of the month, and I will talk about the film a little bit more as the month progresses. I encourage you to watch it as well if you're up for it, and we can talk about it on the Discord. According to the internet, Slaughter High is available for free on Tubi TV. Hopefully I'll be able to refine the details and execution of the segment as, you know, the podcast progresses. But in the meantime, Slaughter High from 1986. That's the movie I think we should watch this month. I recommend it and uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on it over on the Discord. If you have not yet joined the Discord and you don't hate this podcast, come join us. You can find an open invitation to the Discord on my Patreon page. At the bottom of the About Me section, you'll find that open invitation right below the link to this podcast on Anchor. If for some reason the invitation to Discord doesn't work, just send me an email at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com and I'll send you an invite directly. Big, huge thanks to my patrons, Xerxes, Eli, Susie Q, and Alan. Words cannot express how much I appreciate you guys. It's the 1st of November, so um, I actually received the very first of your pledges today, and I am so excited. I will be ordering a new microphone stand, the XLR cables I need to hook up my Audio-Technica mic, which should hopefully um, help with the quality of the podcast. Right now, I'm using Kat's Blue Yeti mic, so thank you so much for loaning that to me, Kat. I'll also be sending out the personalized podcast art prints uh, to the two of you who will be receiving those. So I feel like I say this so much that it's getting a little old already, but seriously, I can't thank you guys enough. I'm so happy to be able to, uh, you know, take your investment and interest in this podcast and and put it into these improvements. I want to do everything I can to give you guys good content because I'm very grateful to all of you, not just for, you know, supporting this project through Patreon, but just being here and listening to me and talking to me and giving me an outlet for my horror obsession. I really appreciate you for that. So thank you so much. Alan and I will be moving at the end of this month, although thankfully we're only moving about five blocks away from where we live now, so it's not really going to be that much of a hardship, and it shouldn't interfere with the podcast in any way at all, but I'm very excited because we're currently living in a studio apartment, really excited that in about four weeks we will be moving from this studio apartment into a two-bedroom. So I'm actually going to have an office where I can record a little more freely and a little more frequently. All right, yeah, I guess I guess that pretty much covers it. Next week, I will be talking about lady killers, female villains in horror movies. That topic was selected by you guys. I think that's going to be really fun. I'm looking forward to talking about it. I hope you have a terrifically terrifying night, guys. And until next time, creep it real. <laughs> <laughs>